Hello again, everyone. I'm glad you could join us today. I'm Jim Boge, and you're listening to Music in My Shoes. I'm thrilled to be here, and yes, that was Vic Thrill. He continues to kick us off every episode that we have. This is episode four, the one where it's the 30th anniversary of Nirvana MTV Unplugged. Really excited about this episode. We have a special guest with us. Actually, it's our first guest of the show, so we are excited, we're thrilled, we're pumped. I don't know what other words we can say. But this is uh, Chris Cassidy, an Emmy-winning filmmaker, photographer. He's worked in the business for 30-plus years. Over the years, he's photographed countless bands from The Stones to U2 to Madonna, The Police, Green Day, and many more. He was the cinematographer on the critically acclaimed documentary Side by Side, which was produced by Keanu Reeves. And in 2020, he directed Dennis and Lois, a documentary about the legendary music superfans, Dennis Anderson and Lois Callert, who had their first date at CBGB's in the late 70s, and they sold T-shirts and merchandise for the Ramones and eventually decided to dedicate the next 40 years of their lives going to concerts and following bands they love. So without further ado, hey, we're going to have Chris Cassidy. Chris, hey, how are you today? Hey, Jim, what's going on? I'm doing all right. Uh, also, let me put out there for everyone, Chris has been a good friend for over 40 years, so it's exciting to have him here with us. He's going to talk a little bit about MTV, uh, the Unplugged show with Nirvana. He was actually there in attendance. And I believe, Chris, what was there? You know, a few hundred people that were actually at the show? Yeah, I think it kind of felt like maybe 200, 250 people. Pretty small. Very intimate. It was at Sony Studios in New York City up on, on the um, West 50s. Look at you remembering exactly where it is. I, I like that. Hey, really quick, I just want to say congrats on the podcast. This is very exciting, Boj. And I think I was maybe one of the first people you've even bounced it off of, right? When you came up with the idea? Yes, you so were. I'm very, very proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I really do. Sounds great. Hey, not about me. It <laughs> is about Nirvana. It's the 30th anniversary of the recording, so they actually recorded on November 18th, 1993, and it was broadcast on MTV on December 16th, 1993, and I feel like everybody I know was there in front of their TV watching the show. I think what people forget is that the actual album didn't come out until November 1st of 1994, so it was quite some time before the album had come out. So let's get right into it. How did you get tickets? Um, where were you sitting? What was it like? What do you know that me and the rest of the listeners don't? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I was lucky enough to attend that show, for one, because um, I, I would imagine there was a ton of people that wanted to go and, and didn't get to go because of how small it was and intimate it was. But my friend Hope, at the time, she had a she had scored a pair of tickets from a radio station. She actually knew the program director at, I think, WNEW. And these tickets popped on her lap, and she thought of who she was going to bring, and she thought of me because I've gone to a bunch of concerts with her, and and I was pretty psyched, to say the least. So um, I bet you were. Yeah, it was really exciting. Uh, I, I had never seen Nirvana up until that point. So um, my only show that I've ever seen them was was the Unplugged show. 
Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a great night. Um, I didn't know what to expect going into even my first unplugged show. So, uh, as we entered, um, I might have mentioned this to you, but uh, you ha- you could not wear white clothing, white shirts. You had to they had they had a, I think a supply of black shirts that they wanted people to wear because white is distracting. In the if the audience is filled with white shirts, your eye your eyes tend to go there and whatnot. So they want the the crowd to blend in the background, and and you're wearing uh, black shirts. I think every time I've been with you, you've always had a black shirt on. So it was probably not a problem for you. It wasn't a problem for me. I did read online that some kid had like a white punk rock t-shirt on. And he kind of like like true punk rock. He refused to take the white off. He, he may have like, you know, put the black shirt on for a second and then like exposed his white shirt during the show. Um, you more, know, more just, power just to, to him. Different. Yeah, exactly. He could have got thrown out, maybe, right? I sat in the first row, but in the back, I was by Dave Grohl. I was very probably five feet away from, away from Dave Grohl. So good seats, but you know, looking at the back of Cobain and and everyone else, but uh, still didn't matter. It was still just great to be there. Yeah. So but let's set the stage real quick. So at the front, uh, front right, I guess it was, would be Kurt Cobain to the left of him would be Chris Novoselic behind towards the back where you were was Dave Grohl on drums. And then I believe wasn't Pat Smear, uh, to the right as well. Yeah. He was in the back as well. Right. Next to like on Dave Grohl's side. Yes. And then Lori Goldston was over to the left on the cello. Yeah. I used to be able to see myself. I, I, I remember I recorded it and, and played back a thousand times and found, and I did spot myself at some point, but I could, don't know if I could do that again. But uh, yeah, we had good seats. We, we, it, it wasn't an assigned seat either. It was kind of like first come first serve. So wherever you were in line outside is kind of where you started to just fill in, in with the seating. I do recall one of the highlights was probably cobain walking around he was just kind of like he was pretty quiet he he was drinking tea um he looked pretty disheveled he looked pretty frail but he walked right by us right in front of us and i think he was talking to someone behind us because he leaned over maybe to shake a hand and basically his sweater was like almost in my face i did read that the cardigan sweater has set a record as the most expensive sweater ever sold, selling for $340,000 at auction in 2019, which to me is just a crazy amount of money to be spending. The guitar that he played was sold for $6 million. Come on. $6 million. Again, a, a ton of money from something that I guess a lot of people think is really iconic. Now, before we go any further, let me just say... In my top five live albums of all time, and not in any particular order, definitely would say this, you know, Nirvana Live in New York, MTV Unplugged, the Rolling Stones Get Your Yaya's Out, the Kinks One for the Road, those three immediately come to mind as in my top five of all time. Most of the ones that I like are much older. This is probably the newest live album that I like as much as I do. Yeah. It's great. It's a great record. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I wonder if they planned on a record, you know, 
uh, as they were setting up for the show, I wonder if they really even planned on a record. Probably not, right? Maybe because Nirvana, you know, their the band ended so quickly, they put out the material afterwards. Do you know? I know that they were looking at doing some sort of double live album, and it just never materialized. And I think it became an afterthought until uh, the demise of of Kurt right. Cobain in April of of 1994. And at that point, I think they started to think differently. Now, I will say in April of 94, I went down to a radio station at Rollins College. A friend of mine was a DJ there and kind of talked about Nirvana, kind of talked about Kurt Cobain and did this thing where I played a bunch of songs. I started with Nirvana and then the next song went to uh, Hole with uh, Courtney Love being the wife of Kurt Cobain. And then everything somehow connected until I came right back into Nirvana at the end. I went to a store down there in Orlando, and I actually found a bootleg of the MTV show. So I got a bootleg in April of 94, Oh wow! started listening to that CD nonstop. It also had the uh, couple of songs that they did earlier that year at Saturday Night Live in New York City. Okay. So I was like, this was as good as I thought it was when I saw it in December. But when they released it in November, and it just sounded fantastic. So much better, the quality. And I just felt like you're, you're actually sitting there. Now, one of the things that I noticed, and I know a lot of other people noticed, the way that the stage was set up, a lot of flowers, candles burning, you know, it's been said in different things that that I've read, you know, that it was set up like a funeral, and that's kind of how Kurt Cobain wanted it to be. I think they added a chandelier. What were your thoughts as you walked in, and, you know, you're thinking... What? You're thinking, oh, they're going to come out and he's going to be smashing guitars. He's going to be whirling and twirling, smells like teen spirit. And all of a sudden, it's very different. What were your initial thoughts there? Uh, yeah, well, as far as the stage goes, I did not. I was not thinking along the lines of a funeral or anything like that, right? Nobody expected Cobain to be dead in, within, what, four months? When was it? Four months? When he... When he passed away right yeah so from, basically from the, yeah basically yeah. about six months later i guess if this was november six months yeah five months my math is I, not very good there I, i've watched enough unplugs where i i i've seen people just dress the stage differently and and whatnot and you know i i, I didn't think twice about really the, the decoration of it. it it looked cool to me it just looked intimate and cool and i love the candles flowers were a nice touch so i definitely wasn't thinking anything along the lines of, uh, you know, some funeral setup, but, um, do you think it's more now, you know, after that we look back and like, Oh, it must've been set up that way because he knew something or he felt something. Do you think it's kind of more made up in our minds? You know, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I I think it's like, it's it's fitting now too. Like, you know, you, you know, you can only imagine if that was planned and be like, wow, that that's like unbelievable. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how. I, I didn't. I didn't perceive it as anything more than just kind of a nice, intimate, cozy set, you know, uh, that they were stepping into. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like the music and the set list and stuff, I, I guess I expected some more of the popular songs because, like, a lot of the songs at the time, I didn't really, you know, there were covers that I didn't really know. 
Um, I, I mean, the first two songs I knew about a girl and come as you are, of course, but, and, and I know the Bowie song, but, um, there was just some songs I guess I didn't expect to hear. Uh, I never heard of the meat puppets at that point. Um, and they, what they did three songs with them. Um, yeah. So all from the same album, they were all from meat puppets too. And while we're talking about it, you know, Kurt Cobain does a much better job singing the songs than what the meat puppets did. In my humble opinion, I think much better job uh, than what they did. I know you mentioned that you didn't know what the set list was going to be like, but it was expecting to hear some of the hits. I kind of mentioned Smells Like Teen Spirit. I bet you were thinking you were going to hear In Bloom, Lithium, some of those songs that you didn't get to hear. Yep. Now, the Meat Puppets, again, we talk about you know them not just having three of their songs play, but they actually come out on the, the stage and they, they play along. And you have uh, Kurt and Chris Kirkwood that are playing three songs. I think when they were asking for different people to come guest on the show, the Meat Puppets were not the people they were looking for. I'm sure they were looking for somebody else. Now, just for the record, the Meat Puppets actually ended up releasing a song in 94, I think it was called Backwater, which was on the radio nonstop. That's a yep. really good song. I like that yeah. song. I enjoy that song. I just think that Nirvana does a better job on this album of the three songs that they did play. What was yeah. your thoughts? Lake of Fire, I really, really like that song. I think, you know, Kurt Cobain, when he sings that, you really feel like it's coming from him, even though he didn't write it. But it, it's got one of those songs of feeling his passion about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but all the stuff that he did, the covers, I mean, the Lead Belly cover, which I'm sure you'll get to as well, you could just hear it in his voice. He put he put everything into it that night, I feel like. I thought he sounded great. You yes. know, and, and I had I had heard, I didn't know this then, but I know this now, that he was, that, that show was touch and go for a few moments. They, they, they weren't sure... If he was showing up, if, you know, he was apparently going through withdrawals and whatnot, and everyone seemed to be nervous around the set. There was definitely like a nervous energy in the room. She kind of didn't know what was going to happen and what was going to go on. But I thought it was just really great. And I thought he sounded great and his guitar sounded great. Like, just awesome, awesome experience. So we talked a little bit about a girl I think um, that song, real good song. It was the first single off of um, this album. It was also on Bleach, I believe, from uh, 1989. Really good song. Nice pop ballad. I enjoy that song. It's actually one of the songs that I listen to the most on my phone because it's the first song on my phone. So every time I plug Uh. my phone into the power, that song comes on. Nice, because of letter A. Right? Letter, letter A. Yeah. Uh, the second, many, second song yeah. that comes on is about a girl from the Paramount Theater that they did in uh, oh, Seattle funny. in uh, October 31st of 1991. Different but, version, I bet, right? Yes, but I'm not going to sit here and go through all of the different uh, <laughs> songs in order that I have on my phone. The 5,000 songs? Yes. Uh, Come As You Are. That's one of those songs that while I liked it when it came out, it just has kind of been overplayed a little bit for me. I don't really listen to it as much. 
But I'm sure that the people putting on the show, the producers, MTV, were excited that they oh, were definitely. you know, playing a song that they knew. Jesus, I mean, it was, it's probably the biggest hit they played, right, on that, on that night. Yeah, that would definitely, yeah. at the time, that would be the biggest song that they played. Yeah. That people knew. Now, post-show, I think people might look at it differently, such as myself. Yeah. Let's get to the next song, Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam, song by the Vaselines. I never heard it before the show, but I just love the way that they play that song. I think it's fantastic. Um I think Chris Novoselic is playing the accordion. It just sounds like a beautiful song, and I think they really do it well. Yeah, sounds great. All I right. did not know that song either. But you know it now. I do. Hey, yeah. the man who sold the world. I like David Bowie. I did not like that song. And you didn't he, like the way they did it? Or no, you didn't like the song? I, I didn't like the way David Bowie did it. I didn't like that. I never yeah. liked that song. I think Nirvana absolutely kills that song and does such fantastic things with him between the music as well as the voice of Kurt Cobain. That's unbelievable. Again, another one of those songs, you can feel his passion, you can feel what he's singing. Did it come across that way at the show? Yeah, for sure. I mean, all the tracks I think did. Um, but yeah, the Bowie song was great. I love the guitar part. It's just, um, it's just so memorable. You know, it is a strange song and I can see how you were kind of, you're kind of iffy about the original version of it, but yeah, I love the Nirvana version. It was, it was really great. It was great to hear something familiar too. I bet it was for those free tickets. You wanted to make sure you got your money's worth. <laughs> Penny Royalty. I, love that song. I thought it was okay on In Utero. In Utero came out in October, so it came out about a month before the show was recorded in New York. I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. I think it is absolutely off the hook, if we can still say off the hook in this year, when Kurt Cobain does that solo. I think it is so much better. I think his voice, while he sings the same way, Having it just lowered, the volume lowered with that guitar and him solo, out of this world. Yeah, it's good. I love that song. So some of the songs that came through really well at the show, as I watched, Dumb, which is off of In Utero, which is kind of acoustic to start off with, I thought was a really, really good job. And then On a Plane, you know, even though it's an electric song, when they perform it here, it feels like it fits really well. And then Something in the Way, another acoustic song. So they, they did a good job of picking some acoustic songs that would work well with the audience. They picked some covers to do that I think worked well. But in the end, for me, the biggest song of all, and I think the biggest song to me of their career, Where Did You Sleep Last Night, which... Contrary to what people think, Lead Belly did not write it. He just made it popular. And it actually came out in 1946. Wow. Yes, a long time ago. But people have always thought, you know, he is the writer of it. It's kind of a, a traditional American folk song. Bunch of musicians have done it. 
but everybody seems to know the Lead Belly version. Um, I feel like Jack Jack White has covered Lead Belly as well, right? Yeah, this kind of guy that would Pearl Jam covered some Lead Belly. There's a bunch of people that that do Lead Belly. Now I don't know if you remember, but Kurt Cobain jokes right before they sing that song, and he says a guy representing Lead Belly Estate wanted to sell him Lead Belly's guitar for five hundred thousand dollars. All right, I mentioned towards the beginning of the show that Kurt Cobain's guitar from this show sold for $6 million. So it's kind of crazy how much things can change and their value can uh, go up quickly. So Where Did You Sleep Last Night? To me, it starts off as any other song, starts to build up, and then when you get to that point where he elevates his voice, where, you know, with my girl, my girl, don't lie to me, and you just feel like... It's coming from the heart. Like, this song was written by him about some specific thing. While it's not, he makes you believe it. Totally. And his, what, voice is, his voice was perfect for that. Oh, you know, fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic for this. Yeah. And then when he is singing, you know, I shiver the whole night through, when he's at that line, and then he takes that pause, and it's kind of chilling. He's got his eyes closed. And all of a sudden, they open up, and then he belts out night through, and then finishes off with the guitar. Unbelievable. I mean, just get goosebumps just from listening to that song. His voice, fantastic. The guitar, the cello, everything about it was just unbelievable. I think that is definitely in my top 100 songs of all time. Nice. How do you, but how do you even play another one after that? You can't. Well, and you can't. And they got up off the stage and yeah. they they walked away and they were like, we're done. You can't yeah. do anything. There's nothing you can do at that point that can top that. At the time of the recording, not knowing the song, did it come across that way to you as well and to the audience? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You could feel like every word, you know. I, I Again, it wasn't familiar, but I, I knew it wasn't his and I knew it sounded kind of like a perfect cover for him uh for them to do um and this yeah just kind of the screaming at the end was just it, it felt like it was a, a finale you know yes and a, a a great one i listen to that song all the time i remember getting that bootleg cd and just playing it over and over and over and really enjoying it and to me you know it's 30 years later I still love the album as much as I did that first time I saw the show in December of 1993. I still get the same feelings. It's unfortunate that Kurt left us in April of of 94, but I'm so glad we had that opportunity for this music to be recorded. And whoever would think that Nirvana, some of their best versions of songs were acoustic versions. Not me. I would never think that in a million years. Yeah, me either, man. They did some wonderful stuff. Totally. Well, I really appreciate you joining us on the show today. Fantastic having you here. we uh, excited that you're our first guest talking about the show, reminiscing about 30 years ago and, you know, what your thoughts are. And we do appreciate it, Chris. Yeah, I remember it as much as I could. It's been 30 years, so it's a little tough, but it was something really special. As a matter of fact, I have a garage bar here at my house uh, in Maplewood, New Jersey, where I live. Garage bars became became like a thing. 
and I have all my ticket stubs from like all the concerts and all my press passes. I, they li- line the top of my bar and the Nirvana unplugged ticket stub is in there. And if the, if the, if the garage ever goes on fire, I'm running in to just grab that one stub. That's it's really special. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm sure that the rest of your family is excited as, <laughs> as much as we are to know what you're going to save. That is great. Yeah. Hey, of course, if no one's in the garage, I go for that. There you go. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's been great to be on the show, Bosch. Hey, I really do appreciate it. Again, Chris Cassidy, Emmy-winning filmmaker, photographer. If you get a chance, check out his uh, documentary, Dennis and Lois. And we, we need to have you back on the show. We can talk a little bit about Dennis and Lois. I'd also like to talk about Side by Side. So at some point, you know, we'd okay. love to have you back here and you could become a friend of the show. Oh, sounds good. Yeah, and his website www.caspix.com that's www.caspix.com all right chris i appreciate it thank you and you have a great rest of your day keep up the good work all right thank you all right see you buddy. all right that was great having chris cassidy as our first guest on music in my shoes jimmy I know people want to hear from you. I know you've been to see Nirvana. What was your experience like? Yeah, first, I'm not the first guest. I thought I was the first guest. What am I? Sidekick? (laughs) (laughs) I'm your Ed McMahon? (laughs) You know, in all honesty, I thought you were the first guest the first time. But then with you coming back each time, so many people think you're part of the show. Yeah, I just wor- I've worked my way into a that, permanent guest slot. That you are part of the show. <laughs> For those it. of you that don't know out there, I get a ton of emails, a ton of text, phone calls. People love Jimmy, think that Jimmy is fantastic. People have asked how long I've known him. I believe today is the fifth time that I've actually <laughs> met Jimmy. When we released episode one, that was the second time that I met yeah, him. Yeah, we, we just, don't talk about the first time. The first time that we that we we might have recorded something, we might not have. We does we don't even talk about. We it. We don't talk about the one that's called the lost episode. The lost is, episode. It's not available out there. But in all honesty, I think you just talked about it. We're not doing it again. I promise. So that is what makes you not a guest. But I think sidekick. I didn't know if that sounded good. It doesn't. It doesn't. So (laughs) I want to introduce Jimmy Guthrie, who is the owner here of Arcade 160 Studios, runs all of the sound, runs this fantastic studio that we're in, and makes the podcast available to everyone when he lets me know I've gone too far and I need to re-record my part. (laughs) So on that note, in all honesty, Jimmy, I know you've been to see Nirvana. What was your experience like? So I was living in England in 1992, post-college, and uh, heard that Nirvana was playing at this place called Reading, uh, and and I was really excited about uh, Pavement was also on the bill, Beastie Boys were also on the bill, a um, bunch of other great bands, uh, Mud Honey, Teenage Fan Club. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't there some other bands from uh, the Seattle scene that were playing? Yeah, L7, Nick Cave played, and so it was amazing. 
it was one of these days that it rained and it, everything was muddy. And so there was just like this mosh pit of mud up in the front for the whole day. And I, you couldn't help, but like if you were anywhere close, you couldn't help but just get covered in mud. And by the end, when Nirvana came on as the headliner, we had moved back, gotten pushed back. So I was kind of further away from the stage by the time they played. But you could totally see that Kurt Cobain got brought out in a wheelchair, in a hospital gown. And the rumors at that time, I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was like, is is Kurt okay? Is he, you know, uh, does he need medical help or whatever? So he was playing into the the rumors. And he gets wheeled out. And I, I think you can see it on the concert video they have now, which like really surprised me. Oh, my God, this show that I saw 30 years ago is now on a concert video. But And then, of course, he pops out of the wheelchair. And I think they went into Breed uh, or whatever it was. They like completely knocked it out. And uh, they, they sounded great and did their thing. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, and it's the exact opposite of the Unplugged show. I mean, it was plugged in, it was live, it was guitars, it was everything that you could ask for in a rock and roll show. And kind of like Chris talked about earlier, I mean, Kurt Cobain's voice is really built to do so many different things. He can, you know, kind of sing where it's almost a whisper, but then he can scream out a song where it doesn't sound distorted, it doesn't sound bad. It almost makes you wish that you could sing like that that yeah. you you could do that and in a show like that where it's all electric and he's doing all of that how can he still be able to sing day after day how can he still be able to talk how is that possible and those guys threw it all out there every gig i mean like they came through athens when i was living there i did not go to the show it was like a midweek show and i had to work or whatever it was they played in this tiny club it was the 40 watt but it was the old location that only held maybe 150 people and at the end of the show they smashed all their equipment <laughs> you know like okay, this isn't, uh, you're not playing an arena that you're not rich that, but they were just, they were so rowdy that they smash all their stuff. And I remember at that Reading show that, you know, they're throwing guitars around and just completely, I think it was Chris threw his bass up in the air as high as he could. And it just landed on the floor. They were wild. They were wild and they were good. And a lot of bands can be wild a lot of bands can be good, but being able to put those together really makes it exciting. And I think that that's what fans want. The songs could be poppy, but yet they could have this punk undertone to it. They could be loud. They could be not so loud. They were really able to do everything. And I think that that's what people really like about Nirvana. Yeah, and I think like going back to that Unplugged show uh, that Chris was at, the, the thing that was so cool about that to me is that they did not try to be a punk band, you know, with acoustic guitars. They didn't try to do their usual thing. They reimagined their songs and some covers in the format. They actually were one of the truest to the unplugged, you know, kind of uh, vibe of anybody that did that. And that's why it's so good that they really, really embraced it. And it's funny that you say that, because I know that Kurt Cobain was 
interviewed. And I don't remember, it might have been the beginning of 93, I don't remember, but I think it was a Rolling Stone magazine article. And he said that he couldn't imagine doing Nirvana songs 10 years from then and having to change the songs to be able to sing them because your voice changes, you change. Mm -hmm. And ironically, one of the greatest things they did is when they changed their songs a little bit to play acoustic their way. Yeah. That's as ironic as you can get from a statement made to a major magazine to what you put out there on display for people to see that, again, 30 years later, we're still talking about that. Right. I mean, they were true artists. They were they they did it right. Well, on that note, I think that's going to be the end of our episode. I appreciate it, Jimmy. I would like to say thank you again to Jimmy, Arcade 160 Studios. I'd like to say thank you again to Chris Cassidy, castpix.com, if you're looking for his website. I'd like to thank Vic Thrill for the music throughout our episode. And I hope that you all have a wonderful day, and we will talk to you the next time on Music in My Shoes. 